All right, talking about the near-death experience. So you have a heart attack. You find yourself outside of your body. Your conscious mind seems to exist outside of the body, maybe in a corner of the room. You're looking down. You can view the scene as the uh, paramedics put your body in the ambulance or as the doctors are working on you. You can hear conversations in the room, but you cannot interact with anybody. Nobody can see you. Then a tunnel opens up and you start getting sucked through a tunnel. And at the end, there's a light that expands and expands and gets bigger as you get closer. And as you go into that light, you experience the most profound love that you have ever experienced in life. We're talking orgasm times 20 million. I mean, we're talking the best experience of your entire life. You, you uh, join with the light, you go through it, you find yourself in a very beautiful setting like a park and you see your deceased grandmother there and you're so happy to see your deceased grandmother and maybe she even looks younger than she did when you knew her because in the afterlife, you know, you don't have to be an old person. Your consciousness forms your image and you can be, you know, an image of you at your best, so to speak. So anyway, you go talk to your grandma and you have a nice conversation. But at the end, she says, you need to go back. It's not your time. You have a purpose in life you have not fulfilled yet. So you need to go back to your body. And you may stammer and say, well, I like it here. I, you know, my life is shitty. <laughs> you know, why should I go back? And then maybe you'll be shown why you need to go back or you'll be reminded by an image, maybe an image of your daughter at home. She needs you. Maybe some other reason that you need to go back. And, and that usually makes people feel like, yeah, yeah, I, I do care about my daughter. And so I will go back for her. And then, boom, you're sucked back into your body and you wake up. Okay, that's a beautiful um, experience. And that's the kind of experience a lot of people have and report um, when they report their near-death experiences. But wait, they're not all beautiful experiences. There are maybe 10 to 15% is estimated of experiences of near death are frightening you know they're experiences of people who get sucked into a dark cold void and experience uh hearing sounds of screaming and devils and being ripped at like as if ripped with claws and unimaginable pain in suffering, other people see flames and devils torturing people. Shit. Uh, so yeah, it's not all <clears throat> light and beauty. That's the first thing we need to establish. And what I wanted to do was kind of go over some frightening near-death experiences and try to explore uh, what could be going on. What can we say about these experiences? What do they mean? Okay. 
Now, it's interesting that uh, reading near-death experiences, I've read hundreds of reports, and reading them uh, took me away from Christianity. Uh, I went through a phase when I was a teenager, uh, a phase of a few years maybe, where I was deeply into the Christian religion. I was reading the Bible every day. I asked Jesus to come into my heart and, you know, the whole shebang, okay? Uh, but if you take the Bible literally, there are some stuff in there that really make you feel bad. Uh, for instance, it says that, you know, any lustful thought is itself a sin. You don't have to actually go out and rape somebody or have sex outside of marriage. You know, that's bad. But any just even even if you lust in your mind, you know, that's a sin. So guess what? There goes masturbation. And, you know, as any young man, that that is uh, a sin that I could not keep at bay very often. Uh, and if you take the Bible literally in these kinds of things, uh, that will cause considerable angst in your mind. And, boy, I was sure to, you know, beg Jesus for forgiveness and and make sure that... Uh, make sure that I asked for, for forgiveness for my sinful desires. And, you know, this is what Christianity and its fundamentalist strain teaches us is that we are born bad, sinful by our very nature. We are lucky that Jesus died for us on the cross. Otherwise, we might all be doomed to hell. That or we would have to sacrifice animals like back in the Old Testament. And that, that would get kind of tough today if we needed to sacrifice a goat every time we uh, uh, sinned. And I know there are other ways of envisioning the figure of Jesus. Um, one such way is that Jesus, like the Buddha or other religious figures, showed us our potential if we follow the path of love. In this view, we are all sons of God, but we don't realize it. If we can elevate our consciousness to that level and live within the divinity within, then we're capable of extraordinary feats such as those done by Jesus or other spiritual figures. Um, I remember the day well when I finally gave up worrying and agonizing over every little sin, you know, and basically told God that, uh, that I was done. You know, I remember it well. It was, you know, I, I told God in my mind, you know, I'm, I don't want to worry about every little sin anymore. And, you know, I'm just going to be me. And as long as I'm not hurting other people, I don't see a problem with, with that. Uh, but if I die and you think that I should go to hell, then so be it. I don't care. You know, I'm not going to worry about it anymore. So from that time, I left Christianity behind, all thoughts of Jesus and sin and and whatever, I, I just left it behind and lived my life as I wanted to. Then, not more than a few months afterwards, I had two very powerful dreams. In one, um, in both, I saw something dying and kind of uh, identified with its sorrow. In the first, it was a fish out of water, literally. It was a fish on my bedroom floor in the dream. And I looked into its eye the fish's eye and I could feel its suffering but there wasn't anything I could do for it I couldn't there was no water I could get and put it in I I just had to sit there and watch it in its last moments before it died and 
identified with its sorrow. And that happened again. Um, now, I didn't quite know what to think of these dreams. They were just like very uh, shocking. Like there's one of those dreams where you really think about what does that mean? Well, uh, later on, I did read some stuff in a dream dictionary that suggested that these kinds of dreams symbolize big changes, new beginnings, and becoming more spiritual in life, which is indeed what happened. Uh, not long after those dreams, I discovered research on near-death experiences. I started reading the near-death experience reports uh, that people had written, and it really changed my perspective on um, death in the afterlife near-death experiences and the mystical strains of all religions teach us what really matters the nde for instance teaches us that god is what most religions proclaim it to be pure love god is not judgmental does not condemn entire sections of humanity to eternal damnation for such pitiful reasons as failing to repent for your sins on time or not accepting jesus as the savior of humanity nor does God condemn anyone to any particular fate. It is we who condemn ourselves if that is the path we so choose. However, God is always there for every living being, beaming with pure love, ready to embrace us in his light and welcome us home anytime we want to embrace God's love, God's light. We are God after all. This is one thing the near-death experience has taught me is we are God. We are our souls, our spirits, whatever our minds, whatever you want to call it, are like little drops of light in the ocean of God. God is like the source consciousness, the source of all existence. And we are like little pieces of light from that source living a human experience. So at essence, we are God. How could we not be loved? Now, Saying all that, it is curious, but I guess not surprising that not all NDEs are pleasant experiences of heavenly realms, love, and light. Uh, after all, dualism is the mark of experience. Hot does not exist without cold. Doctors do not exist without sick people. Pleasure does not exist without pain. How satisfying would food be if we never experience the pangs of hunger? I mean, it doesn't take much thought uh, dwelling on that question to realize that if you never experienced hunger, food would be, eating food would be way less enjoyable. So the question becomes, can good exist without evil? Can we, I mean, we can certainly imagine getting rid of all evil and existing in a realm where everyone is happy and, and radiant. But how much more blissful would heaven be if we entered it after a period of suffering? It's the same question as how much more enjoyable it is to eat when you are starving as opposed to when you are already full. To really appreciate and relish the good, we need the opposite. We need the evil. I mean, should the afterlife really be any different from life on earth? It is a continuation of life beyond earth in higher dimensions of mind. It is not inherently uh, some ultimate state of being, Buddhahood or the Godhead, although that dimension is there. 
a lot of people experience a union with the light and experience the the godhead the source of all existence that that part of the experience is there but it's not as if we're going to stay in that state before long we're going to be off on other adventures whether another life on earth other planets or uh, some experience in the higher dimensions of mind of the mental realm so all i'm saying is that it should not surprise us to find that there exists both good and evil even in the afterlife now back to the topic of orthodox religion and the idea of a judgmental god who throws us into hell if we are bad well, as I mentioned, this is not really the message of NDEs as a whole. Curiously, though, there are some NDEs which do bring the experiencers to that kind of conclusion. I mean, not many, but they are there, uh, which is very interesting to me. So first, we will go with uh, Kate D's experience. She attempted suicide after a lifetime of abuse and pain. She had an experience in which she found herself in an elegant courtroom as the defendant in a trial, presumably to determine her fate, heaven or hell. She felt that the judge was God and the prosecutor was your iconic figure of Satan or Lucifer, very handsome, well-manicured guy in a tailored suit, but with hateful, fiery gray eyes that betrayed his real nature. He was there to testify to her litany of sins. Indeed, he had brought boxes with him. He had stacked up boxes of files uh, with her, all of her sins from her life. So Satan was prepared. He was going to win. She was going to be convicted. Her soul was his. Satan, very confident. Um now she acted as her own defense attorney which seems a little unfair okay i mean come on you're going up against satan the most cunning intelligent and evil being there is come on god at least give the woman a third tier angel to um testify to all the good she did in life but of course this whole experience was a construction for her learning not an actual trial for the fate of her soul I mean, the very idea of such a thing is really comical. I mean, if, if there was such a thing, I would definitely be trying. I would definitely, in her case, have raised my hand and said, objection, mistrial. I have inadequate defense. I'm going up against Satan. Where's Archangel Gabriel? I, I need some defense. Anyway, the idea of, you know, being judged in a courtroom for you for the fate of your soul is is quite comical but this is a serious experience let's keep going at the beginning of the trial kate was livid with god for some of the evil acts perpetrated against her which god didn't stop i mean she was pissed i mean she lashed out she says quote where were you the first time I was molested, I was four years old, violently molested, held down against my will and violated four. Where were you then, God? Okay. I, I can, you know, understand her anger. No doubt about it. Now, God, the, the judge in this experience, very calmly said, look into my eyes 
And she at first was hesitant. She she felt like, oh shit, I just yelled at God. Am I going to be struck down right here? But anyway, very calmly said, look into my eyes. And she looked into his eyes and she saw from that moment in time, from God's perspective, she says she saw the wrenching pain in his heart and saw that he had endured the experience with her bearing the brunt of the pain for her to prevent her complete demise and sending his love and comfort to her four-year-old little body. He showed that he had always been there throughout her life, but that she had let the darkness define her instead of truth and light, his truth and light. Now, Lucifer, um, Satan, told the judge that she had killed many people in her life and she rightly objected uh, objection your honor uh, because she had not killed many people if she had she would be a serial killer and locked up in prison somewhere that wasn't the case but then god gave her a lesson on how hurting others is like taking sunlight away from a seed it diminishes their capacity to to grow and be happy she experienced herself dying a little inside each time she was abused God showed her that he had always been there if she had sought him out. But instead, she let the hate she she hated herself. She thought she was worthless and let the darkness consume her. And at the end of her courtroom experience, uh, the courtroom melted away, and she was back in her blood-soaked bed from having slit her arm in an attempted suicide. Uh, she she uh, was given the message to ice the arm, so she put ice on it to stop the blood and then lay back down and asked Jesus for forgiveness for all her wrongs and for him to come into her, her heart. Then she uh, faded back into the courtroom where Jesus informed her that she was forgiven and he would uh, live in her heart from this day forward. And Jesus symbolically pinned a bloodstained note Actually, the suicide note she had writ, she had written, he pinned it to the box of sins that Satan had bought, had brought to the court, uh, and the note uh, said, "Forgiven." Now that's a very powerful ex uh, spiritual experience, and accordingly, she now believes in Jesus, Satan, heaven, and hell. I mean, this was a very religiously. Um, I want to say tainted, but that's not a good word. Uh, you know, structured experience. It was structured uh, very religiously. Now, she uh, changed her life around after this. She says eliminating people who were ne a negative influence and trying to help others live a fuller life. And I found another courtroom-like experience in the form, this one from Gary L., who had a similar NDE. He was a big-time drug dealer to the Hollywood scene when he got mixed up with some fentanyl, which he thought was China White heroin. He overdosed on the stuff and blacked out, um, only to find himself in a surreal park-like setting where he saw family and friends looking young and radiant. So his near-death experience is starting out very positive. It was a happy place indeed. But on one side of the park, he saw an off-white wall which stretched along the side of the park. Approaching it, he noticed a door 
in the wall that was slightly ajar, so he went in to take a peek. What's in this door? What's behind this door? Well, big mistake, right? He found himself in a courtroom, right? Uh, here we go again. At least he had a defense attorney this time who he describes as his guardian angel, so at least he had a defense attorney. Let's, it's a little, little bit more fair, but it'll get unfair in a second. Just, just wait. He doesn't describe Lucifer being there to prosecute, um, but describes it as a prosecuting angel. And the judges, interestingly, were not God himself this time, but three strict Puritan elder types dressed in black with white collars and black hats, which actually, that sounds way worse than God as judge. Uh, however, God was at the trial, evidently. God made an appearance, uh, not in the form of a wise sage, but as a living light in a tunnel behind the judges. God informed Gary that if he could just survive the trial, that he would merge with the light and experience heaven. And in fact, he got a taste of that as he was viewing this light in the tunnel. He says he had an experience of this light as the source of all existence, and with it came a feeling of joy beyond any orgasm or drug experience he had ever had. But, when the, but then the vision faded, and it was time for the trial to begin. Family and friends were called up to the witness stand by the prosecuting angel, where they testified to all the bad deeds he had committed in his life. His defense attorney, Angel, tried his best to object and yell, hearsay, your honor, hearsay, uh, but kept getting overruled by the judges. Definitely the deck seemed stacked against him, and it was obviously not a fair trial. Had all these family and friends saying, yeah, he said this to me, he did that, he stole my car, this guy's an evil, whatever, okay, and uh, it seems like the deck was really stacked, okay. Now, the judge's final verdict um, was an interesting one, though. They told him, quote, dying's too good for you. You have to go back. And boom, he woke up in the hospital looking up at a nurse. Now, this experience made him aware, he says, of the pain he had caused others, even when he thought he was a super nice guy. So he knew he had to go back and make things right, as it were. And he feels he was sent back to clean up his karma. So really the courtroom experience taught him um, about some of the little things he might have said or done that hurt other people that he was oblivious to. So you see in both instances of courtroom judgment, uh, the verdict is not heaven or hell. Instead, the experience serves a purpose in the case of Kate, she learned of God's love in the face of evil acts perpetrated against her. She learned to forgive and accept love into her heart. And she learned how small actions can hurt others. And most importantly, she learned to not give in to the darkness, but instead seek the light. Hope and forgiveness were resounding messages in her experience. Gary, on the other hand, just needed to realize how he had hurt people and come back and make things right and be a better person. So we should not view these experiences as a literal trial to determine the fate of one's soul in the afterlife, condemnation to hell or allowance into heaven. 
They are what they are. They're constructed experiences by your higher self uh, for learning, designed to teach us about ourselves or our faults or how we can learn to view our experiences in a different light and live our lives better. Even if we did accept the notion of an eternal heaven or hell in the afterlife, we would have to ask ourselves, what is the purpose? Would there be any purpose to an eternal hell or an eternal heaven? I think not, because an experience of hell is only valuable if we can learn from it and make better choices as a result. Otherwise, you might as well just annihilate the soul and take it out of existence. Because, I mean, unless you can learn from your experience and uh, make better choices, what's the point? Uh, there, on the other side, an experience of heaven is only valuable in that it teaches us to cherish the good. But eternal existence in either of these states seems to me superfluous. I mean, God desires experience, and experience needs drama, dualism, light, and dark. So now we can move on to the real hellish uh, near-death experiences, uh, where experiencers go to a dark place with evil spirits. Getting scared. <laughs> But anyway, seriously, Anya M. overdosed in a suicide attempt and found herself in a dark void. Then she began to hear voices in the blackness, which got louder and louder. Next, she began to feel like beings, which she described as angry and tortured souls, were pulling her down. As she was pulled down into the darkness, she felt cold. The beings started ripping and tearing at her as she felt their feelings of hopelessness and helplessness. She thought that all she wanted was to wake up, go back to her earthly life into physical reality. And then she did wake up back in her body. Kim M also had such an experience. She describes being in a dark place where she could feel claws and teeth tearing at her skin. She heard screaming and the sounds of animals or devils. She was being eaten and torn to pieces, experiencing unimaginable pain. These experiences, they tie in well with Howard Storm's NDE, in which he was led into the darkness by beings that told him to follow them after he found himself in the out-of-body state in the hospital two uh, beings showed up and said, come with us, come with us, and that was a bad idea. Okay. These beings, too, after they took him to a dark place, began to tear off his flesh and eat him. The difference this time, though, was that Howard had the intuition to pray to God. He said he began to recite phrases from the 23rd Psalm, the Star-Spangled Banner, the Lord's Prayer, the Pledge of Allegiance, God Bless America, whatever he could think of, uh, whatever churchly-sounding phrases uh, came to mind. And to his astonishment, as he was saying these things, as he was reciting these phrases, the evil beings began backing away as if he had thrown boiling water on them. Apparently, they wanted nothing to do with goodness and love. And he finally yelled out, Jesus, save me. And subsequently, a light appeared, and he talked to Jesus. 
and had a very wonderful near-death experience at that point. And this has happened to others as well. They have been saved after calling out to God. It doesn't have to be Jesus. I mean, love is really what matters. And you have to understand too, telepathy is the norm in this, the out-of-body, other-dimensional state. So the energy of your thoughts can be felt by those around you. So if you're fighting and struggling these evil spirits, whether they're objective evil spirits or creations of your own mind, if you're fighting them, that's food for the fodder. They love that. However, if you think loving thoughts, if you concentrate on like a loving memory, for instance, evil will tuck its tail and get the hell out of there because evil wants nothing to do with that energy of love. Um, Love is what connects you to the light, after all. At first, the evil spirits uh, may just get angry and try to uh, make you stop, okay, and and make you believe that there is no God and that your situation is hopeless. But if you persist, if you persist in focusing on loving memories and thoughts, the experience will usually, I'm going to say this, usually shift to a positive NDE. And I say that usually because uh, some indie near-death experiencers have called out to God and not been saved. At least, not immediately. So, hmm, the plot thickens, right? Well, first of all, it's important to keep in mind that near-death experiencers, um, the ones we can talk to, do have come back to their bodies. So they weren't in that state for a particularly long time. We don't know what would happen if they had stayed in the in the afterlife state. So just because God was called upon and didn't immediately show up doesn't mean that that wouldn't have eventually happened um, if they didn't come back to their body. But if, and this is a big if, if focusing on love or sincerely calling out to God doesn't work, then I would propose that this hellish experience is probably part of a spiritually purifying process that you should surrender to. Just let go. Stop fighting and let the experience play out without struggle. Thy will be done, as they say in Christianity, or as I would probably say it, fuck it, I guess this is my fate. Eventually, I think it will resolve and transform into a positive experience, like a rebirth of the soul into love and light. Like I said, you're not going to be eternally in some state. Life is about change. It's karma. It's change. It's growth. Okay. You're not going to stay there eternally. I hope not. Now, the question of why most people who uh, almost die have a positive near-death experience but probably somewhere in the, I'm going to say 10% range, have a negative experience. Estimates range from 1% to 22%. That's a hard one to answer. And I don't think it's a matter of bad people have negative near-death experiences while good people have uh, positive ones because research shows that saints can have hellish experiences while felons can have a positive experience. So I know what you're saying. You know, people say life isn't fair. Now you're telling me the afterlife isn't fair? Son of a... Okay. 
Well, we can't be so simple-minded as to think that this has anything to do with fairness or what you deserve, okay? As with all experience, it's it must have to do with what is needed or desired on some level of your being. We have to remember that whatever beings or things exist in reality, good or bad, they are ultimately aspects of yourself as you are a split-off piece of God. So at essence, you are God, you are one with God, and have created all things and beings in existence. Uh, the friar, the priest, the mystic Saint Padre Pio had many experiences of what he perceived were attacks by demonic forces. He experienced being tortured by demons in various ways and actually developed physical bruises uh, to show for it on some occasions. Now, we can speculate all day as to why he might have conjured up evil spirits to fight him. Was it to prove to himself that he was holy? I, I don't know what the purpose of these experiences were, but I do surmise that those experiences served some purpose for his life and spiritual journey. So even though he was a holy man, a priest, a mystic, he experienced demonic attack. Uh, another saint, Saint Teresa of Avila, uh, left her body on many occasions while deep in prayer. She had experiences of hell in which she, I quote, the sufferings were so intolerable that though in my life I have endured the severest sufferings of this kind, none of them is of the smallest account by comparison with what I felt then to say nothing of the knowledge that they would be endless and never ceasing. It is the soul itself that is tearing itself to pieces. I felt, I think, as if I were being both burned and dismembered. Now, this sounds very reminiscent of the near-death experiencers that we uh, went over just a minute ago, being dismembered, torn apart by evil beings. But interestingly, St. Teresa came to view these experiences as beneficial to her spiritual development. She described it as a kind of purification process. As Christopher Bach explained, quote, through them, these frightening hellish experiences, something negative was being lifted from her soul. By submitting to them and following them wherever they took her, she found that her experiences of mystical union deepened. So even though while in the experience it was horrific and seemed like it would last forever, it was really a purification process through which negative aspects of herself were purged. And that's very reminiscent of the psychologist Stanislav Grof's work with LSD and later holotropic breathwork psychotherapy. His patients went through stages including hell-like experiences, a purifying fire, and finally ego death and rebirth, resulting in experiences of redemption forgiveness, profound love, and cosmic unity. So that's all to say that these negative experiences of being ripped apart could be the beginning stage of a process which leads to mystical union with the divine light. Now, besides the experience of being in a dark place with perceived tortured or evil souls tearing you to shreds, 
Others have reported witnessing a more stereotypical hell with flames and devils and being tortured. Um, now, this could also be a purifying experience or an experience one thinks they deserve or even an experience some might be attracted to. I mean, after all, we do have a thing called sadomasochism. I mean, some people enjoy it. You never know. Now, the near-death experiencer Sarah saw such a hellish realm in her NDE. She says she was sucked in to this hellish realm via a doorway in the classic tunnel experience. There were, there were doorways in the tunnel. And uh, while floating above the scene was, quote, fascinated by the seemingly infinite varieties of pain and anguish that were being inflicted on the, on the inhabitants of this realm. She says, in this realm, she saw devils torturing people and people torturing each other. However, she felt that no one had put them there or was keeping them there. In her opinion, the only thing keeping them there was, quote, their belief in the agony they continued to suffer, unquote. She left this realm through the doorway she had entered and looked into another doorway and saw a realm of lost souls, quote, with their heads down, completely engrossed in their own depressed, self-pitying thoughts, unaware that anyone else was around them. After looking into another doorway and seeing a heavenly realm, she eventually went into the light and experienced bliss and happiness. She says she learned that she is eternal, and even though she would experience many forms of death, she has nothing to fear, quote, only more to experience, and I am the one who ultimately chooses what I experience. Really, folks, that's just it. Um, if we are God at our deepest level, then we have each chosen to experience the life that we now live. We have chosen these experiences, good or bad as they may be, for some purpose, even if we can't understand that purpose now. But at some point after death, all will be reveal revealed and we will understand the meaning of our life on earth, the purpose of it, as well as the purpose of any experiences in other dimensions like the afterlife. Now, many near-death experiencers report undergoing a life review in which they view all of their experiences in life simultaneously, like a panoramic view of your whole life. Specific experiences can be zoomed in on and can be viewed from multiple perspectives. For instance, if you said something mean to another person, you can experience not only what that was like for you, what you were thinking and feeling at the time, but you can sort of jump into their mind and experience from their point of view, from their consciousness, what they felt at the time, what they, how they took that um, comment or whatever you did. Now, in some sense, this may be deemed a hellish part of the near-death experience. If you've heard a lot of people, then that can be a, a kind of hell because you're gonna re-experience all the pain you've caused um, in other people. But it's not meant as punishment. It's meant as a learning experience to learn how your actions affected others.
okay? And it works the other way around too. If you've um, made a lot of other people's lives happy, you will experience how you made them feel uh, joyous. So before we leave this topic, another interesting hell experience uh, was that of Van I, who found himself in a seemingly endless hallway with many doors. Behind each door was a person experiencing punishment in the form of what they loved or hated in life. So behind one door was a man who was gluttonous in life, being force-fed constantly. Uh, behind another door was a man who loved sex in life, strapped to a chair with naked women dancing around him, teasing him. But of course, he couldn't touch them or have sex with them. So that, <laughs> let me tell you, that would be torture. Now, this was all explained to him, of course, by Satan, okay, who caught up with him in the hallway and answered his questions. Uh, reminiscent of Kate's experience we discussed earlier, Satan appeared as a well-manicured, handsome gentleman in a tailored suit. Van actually didn't know who he was at first, but Satan was sure to ask him, do you know who I am, son? Do you know who I am, young boy? And uh, Satan said, after he said, well, I'm not exactly sure, I am Satan. Okay, so Satan was made damn sure he knew. I am the Satan of legend. Uh, but... Of course, Van ran the hell out of there. He ran down that hallway. He was looking for the exit, and Satan was in his mind the whole time, like, you can't escape. You're here forever, son. And so anyway, he kept running, and <clears throat> he eventually got to the end of the hallway and slammed into the wall. But then he was pulled through by God. Um, God saved him. He experienced God as a, a man in a white realm. Now, God, again, made sure he knew where he just was in hell with Satan. God was like, you know where you just were, right? But no worries now as God had saved him because he didn't want him to die yet. He sat with God for some time asking questions and getting answers. Finally, God told him that he wanted him to go to college and not stop until he told him to. And then he was back in his body. Now, the whole thing feels like a setup to me. I mean, this is an experience constructed by his higher self or God for some purpose or another. What he experienced was a constructed reality to send a message that would benefit him in his life. He mentioned that he cleared up his life in many ways, like he stopped caring about getting rich he stopped treating people badly and got married and had kids instead of messing around with lots of women. We should not take these experience, experiences uh, literally as the ultimate truth. For instance, God is not a bearded old man, and Satan, as the personification of evil, is not a handsome, well-manicured guy, although they can appear that way in dreams and visionary experiences or near-death experiences. They can take on whatever forms they like. The hell he experienced may be real or it may be just a construction for his own learning. But experiencing hell was apparently what it took to clean up his act. 
And maybe it's true that if you are overly obsessed with something in life, you may take that energy with you into the afterlife and be tortured by it. I don't know. But what I do know is that the idea of hell as punishment does not make a lot of sense. Especially punishment from an angry God. And if you even think about eternal punishment, we have to ask, what's the purpose? So God can get revenge? Are you serious? I mean, I think if you think God cares about revenge, you've missed the whole point about God and what God is. And besides, true love, true goodness does not come from doing good because you fear the consequences if you don't. True goodness, true love comes from the heart. It's a genuine desire to help another person because you care about them. Not because you want a reward or you care about how, what other people are going to think or because you care about uh, or you fear going to hell. No, genuine goodness is from the heart when you just want to help them because of love, because you care about them, regardless of all those other things. So in Van's experience... The experience of being in hell was a temporary one to teach him a lesson or it was an impetus to help him change his life around. What I find curious is why hell would be used for such purposes instead of the more common negative life review, which can include possible futures based on the choices a person makes. So in the life review, as we talked about, you can kind of see all the moments in your life at once together and you can experience all the experiences again and we have to understand that time doesn't really exist in this dimension so it's like you can re-experience your life in the blink of an eye but anyway sometimes in the life review there's a being there with you a spiritual being of light and they show you possible future scenarios after you come back into your body Here's what will happen if you, for instance, continue drinking every day. Here's how your children will turn out. Here's what will happen in their lives. But if you stop drinking and take better care of your children, here's what can possibly happen. This child can become this. This child can become this. But if you keep drinking, this child's going to be a prostitute. This, you know, you get the idea. You can be shown possible futures. So then uh, people who have this negative life review, they come back and change how they live their lives, uh, not based on fear of something, but based on the true desire to make life better for themselves and those around them because they really love them. They care about them and want them to have a better life. Okay, to wrap this up, um, I think the key to heaven is forgiveness. We don't need to be carrying baggage with us when we die. So I think the key is to forgive in this life. Now, it's not that you need Jesus to forgive you. God, God already forgives you, okay? Don't worry about that. But specifically, you need to be able to forgive yourself as well as others. You need to be able to forgive yourself of the wrongdoings you have, you have done and let go of the negative emotions and guilt associated with that. Harboring negative emotions or thoughts may draw you towards hellish realms. 
Um, this is speculative, of course. You might not go to a hellish realm, even if you have a lot of guilt. You could go to the light, have a life review, and come back. And, you know, this is all speculation, but it's possible. I mean, some people do get addicted to the pain, the guilt, or the self-pitying thoughts and can't let go. This may create a negative experience in the afterlife. However, it is something that you have created and not a state that has to continue. On the other side, people who seem just plain evil, like someone who enjoys torturing people, uh, may very well experience a hellish realm where they are tortured in the afterlife, but it's not because they have to or it's some kind of punishment, but because they are drawn to it. It's an interesting, uh, there are there is a connection between opposites, like victim and torturer. It's as if the two opposites are really one. And past life therapist Roger Wolder explains this connection, which he found uh, through his work as a psychotherapist. He says, quote, almost invariably a victim's thoughts like, how could he do this to me? Or, I'll get back at him, produce violent images of causing that pain to another, or else the torturer becomes deeply identified with his victim's agonies to the extent of secretly imagining how it hurts. So in the play of lives, the victim turns persecutor or the torturer in his constant infliction of pain needs to suffer the very thing he inflicts. So he's talking about... Um, you know, if you believe in reincarnation, this theory that we live many lives, which makes the most sense to me, because after all, if we are eternal um, spirits, if we are eternal energy from God, it wouldn't make sense to just live one life. Why would you live one life and then, you know, screw it, I'm done, I'm going to stay in heaven? It's like, no, you would come back, you would experience being di many different kinds of people in many different kinds of situations, experiencing many different kinds of lives. Um, that makes more sense to me anyway. Uh, so he's explaining how, you know, they will kind of reverse roles over many lifetimes. It's like they identify with each other. But the way out of this cycle is forgiveness, and releasing any negative energy, releasing that hate. Uh, this is the way to love, to forgive and be, just surrender and release the hate, release all the negative energy. Okay, so it's important to look closely at negative near-death experiences because it's all too easy to just, well, we'll just toss those aside after all. Most near-death experiences are positive, so. Yeah, we don't know about those, but um, we can just toss those. Those are anomalies. Okay, that's not right to do because anomalies are what you should be focusing on. Um, you know, like science. Science often tosses out the anomalies. Oh, evidence of telepathy? <laughs> Brush that aside. That can't fit in my theory. So uh, that's not good to do. Uh, we need to make a theory based on the totality of all experiences and uh, be able to make theories that can account for them. So I guess as, as a final thought, I would say that there is a shadow side to the divine. There is evil. I mean, it's the very fabric of creation depends upon it. But I do also believe that we are all pieces of God. We are all in essence really God. 
and that we are responsible for the creation of our experiences. Whatever we experience, we have decided to experience for some reason or another. So I'm going to leave you with that. Leave your comments below and um, I wish you a good night.